Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets, a middle grade novel due out in May. And I'm Evie O'Hallam. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider what is it about families that makes them such a compelling subject for literature? We got the idea for this episode after we read a short story in The New Yorker called A Challenge You Have Overcome by Allegra Goodman. I have to admit, I almost never read The New Yorker's short stories. I tried a couple a long time ago. I didn't like them. And I decided that, you know, none of them were for me, which is, of course, <laughs> totally faulty thinking. What are you talking about? <laughs> but it makes that, perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. That's a topic for a whole other time. Anyway, um, I gave Allegra Goodman's story a try because it's described this way. A Challenge You Have Overcome is about a high school senior, Nate, and his parents' attempts to get him to write his college application essays. Yeah. I mean, come yeah. on. No, <laughs> clickbait right, right there. Right, right. My <laughs> girls recently applied to college. There was no way I was skipping that story. And I loved it. It was so good at capturing family dynamics well beyond the college application process. And she does all of that so quickly in so few pages. Then I looked into Allegra Goodman and I realized that family is at the heart of so many of her books. Yeah, it is a brilliant story. Though I have to confess, I felt some trepidation about talking to Allegra <laughs> after I read the story, which I read on your recommendation. I think I said something to you like, oh God, it's like she was looking into my soul as a middle-aged woman <laughs> in the crossroads of her life dealing with separation from her newly adult children. <laughs> but true. it's yeah. so true. Yeah. But you told me to be brave and I never want to disappoint you. Oh, And boy, <laughs> am I glad we asked Allegra to talk to us and that she said yes. Yes, I really enjoyed this episode. Yeah, oh, me too. So Allegra Goodman's novels include Catterskill Falls, which was a National Book Award finalist, Intuition, The Cookbook Collector, Paradise Park, and The Chalk Artist. Her fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, Commentary, and Plowshares, and has been anthologized in the O. Henry Awards and Best American Short Stories. She's written two collections of short stories, The Family Markowitz and Total Immersion, and a novel for younger readers, The Other Side of the Island. Her essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times Book Review, the Wall Street Journal, the New Republic, the Boston Globe, and the American Scholar. We started by talking to Allegra about that recent New Yorker story and whether there's something about families in particular that lets us take one moment, like the college application process, and expand so far beyond it. Here's what she said. Yeah, I think that often is the case. I mean, you'll often know, uh, notice that maybe you're having an argument about one thing, but it's really about 10 things that are underneath that argument, you know? Right. I have no right. idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, your kid's applying to college, but it's not just about, you know. I think um, the editor I worked with asked me some questions about the story, and she was sort of like, what are they bickering about? And I wrote back, their whole lives. What are you talking right. about? It's not just, right. it's never just one thing, right? Yeah. It seems like you think of bickering a little bit as like a kind of keyhole that you can peer 
through to see the secrets of a marriage. And I wonder whether there's anything else that you think of that way. Well, I think that, you know, sort of (laughs) anything involving the children reveals a lot about ourselves, right? I mean, I think parenting is just about the most humbling thing you can ever do. It reveals your own anxieties, your own thoughts about (laughs) your mortality, your youth, where you went to college, the mistakes that you wish you hadn't made, your anxiety, your love for your children and your love for your family, your pride. (laughs) It all comes together, right? So anything involving that. And I think that, you know, in this story, certainly the college application process is a keyhole. That whole phenomenon of young adult children not listening at all to their parents, uh, which in this case, you know, the mother is a college counselor. How how bad is that? Right. Right. I so relate to her because, you know, I'm a writer and my children cannot stand to show me any of their writing, including their college essays. It's such a painful, painful process, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember when my daughter was in middle school, I think she was in about eighth grade and she wanted to get help on her paper. And I, of course, offered to help her. And she said, no, we have a writing specialist at school. (laughs) Right, 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 right. You're like, well, has she been published in the New Yorker? No, <laughs> you wouldn't no. go there. No, no, I'm she sure not. Care, she didn't know or care about the New Yorker. <laughs> I'm sure not, no. Not when you're 12. And one thing that's interesting too, I think, about your children and your reaction to what they do is it's it's also so often about your parents, right? Oh, yeah. Their reaction to you and your reaction to their reaction to you and... Yeah. And that really comes through in this story with Steve's parents, very different parenting style, which he's tried to do it very differently. Yes. (laughs) You know, he felt they were overbearing. Of course, his kid thinks he's overbearing. You know, you can't win, basically. (laughs) (laughs) So true. Okay. This is going to seem like a very random question, but just bear with me for a second. Alfred Hitchcock has said, and I'm paraphrasing, You can have a scene with people around a table having the most mundane conversation, and you change the scene radically if you put a bomb under the table that the audience knows about. Same exact conversation, it suddenly becomes riveting. Do you think something like the college application framework in your short story serves as a kind of bomb under the table for the reader? Absolutely. That's what's happening here. It's the gun (laughs) that has to go off when Chekhov say, if you have a loaded gun, it has to go off. Right. I even got some messages from people after the story was published where one uh, person wrote, you know, I was sure he was going to get into Brown. I was shocked that it didn't happen. (laughs) 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 Like that's what mattered, right? Right. You know, there is that kind of suspense (laughs) and they're kind of hoping against hope and then they find out. Have you talked to your own children about this story in particular? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You have children who are college age and older. So I'm just curious if this story led to any interesting <laughs> conversation. Let's just say I've been around the block a few times. I've been yeah. through this college process four times. So yeah. I have two in graduate school and two in college right now. Only one of my children read it. My oldest read it. He said, oh, I felt bad for Nate. Poor Nate or something like that. Oh, Not no. a lot of empathy with the parents. The other three didn't read it at all. <laughs> Which is fine. Maybe it's too close to home, honestly, right now. I liked one thing that you said in an interview. You said the sort of mysteriousness of the adolescent was something that you were really trying to think about. And so it seemed apt that he wouldn't tell them what the essay was about ever. And you were sticking with the point of view of the parents to drive home that mysteriousness. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, you mentioned the keyhole earlier. When you're a writer, you have to kind of choose your apertures. You can't put everything in, especially in a short story, which is this very small little frame. So you have to choose what you're going to reveal and what you're going to conceal. And they're equally important. I picked my points of view here, (laughs) which were the parents. Can we go back for one second to the question of whether Nate gets into Brown? Sure. One thing I love about Allegra's focus on family is that whether he gets in, whether he doesn't get in, whether we're not sure, any version serves her story, Mm. right? The question is how that decision point would affect the dynamics of this family. And I felt so immersed in the family after so few pages that I'm finding it intriguing to think about how would these people be affected vis-a-vis each other in any of those cases? That is really good writing. She also does that thing that great writers do where every word counts, every description, no matter how small or throwaway, reveals character. We were so excited to learn that Allegra is creating a collection of stories about Nate's family, much the way she gathered interconnected stories about a different family in her book, The Family Markowitz. She has said that both the world and her writing have changed since she wrote that earlier collection. We asked her to say more about those changes, and this is what she said. So the Family Markowitz, I think, was published in 1996, so many years ago, about 25 years ago. And I was a very young writer. I was still in my 20s myself. I think at that point I had one small child. I wouldn't have been able to write a a story about somebody going through the college admissions process at that point. It's interesting. The older relatives in the family Markowitz, Rose Markowitz, the matriarch, you know, those were the elders. And I was really the age of the young people in that collection, sort of projecting upwards and writing about the older people. But those were like the people, my grandparents and great grandparents generation. I'm now 53 and have grown children. And so my position in the generations has changed. Mm -hmm. The world has changed in terms of, you know, technology has changed. There are no cell phones in that book. Ed Markowitz goes to pick up a letter at the department, which there are still some letters, but not really. So all of that has changed. Mm -hmm. My own style has changed as well. I think that I'm My own writing is maybe more nuanced. The humor is a little less broad. I would say it's sort of that kind of laughter through tears quality now. It's more bittersweet just from being older. Have you had any shift? um, Have your interests shifted thematically? You know, are there just different, I don't know, topics or, or elements of relationships that you're more interested in focusing on? That's a really interesting question. Um, still writing about sort of birth and death, (laughs) pixelated old people. But I have more experience with birth and death now and what all of those things mean. The whole writing about young adults, which I kind of touched upon in the family Markowitz, I can write about with more understanding now. But a lot of it, I think it has to do with taking a topic or a person and sort of seeing and having a new perspective on it. Did you just say pixelated old people? Yeah. (laughs) Can you say a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, um, in the family Markowitz, Rose Markowitz is, I would say, pixelated. She's not all there. She's not all together. She has moments of clarity, but she also makes up her own story. (laughs) Right. Right. And I really enjoyed writing her. Okay. I'm going to try to learn some writing secrets here. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about how you go about trying to capture family dynamics persuasively on the page? Mm. I think that for me, in my stories and my novels, it sort of starts with voice. Ever since I was a really young 
writer. And I started when I was 17 or so. I was really interested in just listening to the way people talk to each other. Those kinds of dialogue or in some contexts, that kind of bickering or those arguments, that was where I started. And that's where the characters came from. And if you try to get your voices to be authentic and you get the characters speaking to each other, I think that is often the way into exploring a family dynamic. And of course, every writer's different. You know, some writers are much more visual. Some are much more focused on plot. For me, it really starts with the voices of the characters. Yeah, makes sense. I, this is a very common notion. I can't remember how I first read it or who said it. I'm sure it was someone famous, but that the Victorian novels were so often about marriage because people were stuck in marriage and that divorce becoming readily available kind of killed marriage in a certain sense for for novels, um, which I'm not sure is true at all. <laughs> but I wonder whether family in general remains such compelling material in large part because it is so difficult, if not impossible, to leave your biological yeah. family. I think that's right. You know, marriage being sort of the central plot of like the 19th century novel. And I think a lot of it was because if you were writing about a woman, then sort of the one major choice that she made was who to marry, right? Right. I actually think that um, it didn't kill off the novel. I mean, there's so many novels about divorce and, um, right. yeah, and right. you know, people's different journeys and people who never get married, you know, and I think in a way it sort of fragmented and fractured the marriage plot fractured so that if you write about women now, you get to write about them making different choices and their career outside the home actually becomes a an important theme which is really, really interesting to me. It's central to my book, Intuition, where we have a woman scientist and a woman who wants to be a scientist and you know what all that means and what it's like to deal with sexism in the workplace and all of that. So many, many rich areas to explore past the marriage plot, although the marriage plot is still, is still important. It's still a major decision and does affect a lot of characters and a lot of people in the real world, of course. I want to go back for a second to something Allegra said about the importance of voice in her writing. There's a scene I particularly love in the family Markowitz. It's between Rose, the pixelated family matriarch, and a woman named Alma who's trying to take Rose's oral history. Alma is much younger, and she wants to impute all this meaning to Rose's experiences as a child during World War II. Rose is having none of it. Alma has an agenda. She, you know, she, there's a point she's trying to make. Rose is just in her own world. At one point, Alma says, you're sublimating this. You're purposely forgetting, pushing it out of sight. And Rose says, when you forget something, you don't try. You just forget what happened. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. They're both sort of right and they're both also wrong. And it's just a great example of voice in both instances. I also think it might be an example of the humor that Allegra now thinks is too broad and has moved away from, but it made me laugh and laugh. I so love that scene. And it's also such a great example of how there are no fixed truths. You know, that one generation sublimating is another generation's forgetting. Yeah. yeah. There was something Allegra said to us that keeps coming back to me. She said, Alma's truth is Rose's, quote, great history and romance of her life. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been pondering that. It makes me wonder, what would my inner life be like if I had the vocabulary of another generation, either older or younger? Yeah. I, well, I, I know I feel 
certain frustrations with my parents' view of our family lore, <laughs> which they lived, by the way. I didn't live it, but nonetheless. But that doesn't mean you don't get to have a strong opinion about it. <laughs> right, right. I have my own vocabulary about it. You know, it's led to some lovely disagreements. And I also am a little scared to learn the frustrations my children surely have with my version. Ooh, ooh yeah. good point. Okay, so yeah. maybe maybe I'm not interested in how another generation <laughs> Well, next we talk to Allegra about another story she wrote about intergenerational families, her novel Catterskill Falls, which is about an Orthodox Jewish community. There's a moment when one of the characters is thinking about inheritance, where Allegra writes, that is the truth about inheritances, that they have nothing to do with continuity, the maintenance of property. The power of legacies is all in the separation, in the conflict between the older and the younger, the alienation of the living from the dead. What a marvelous fiction, he thinks, that places and things or even ideas can be transmitted over time, that property can be kept in families, or that the families themselves will remain intact. Mm. I love that. (laughs) I know. I know so much there. And so we asked Allegra if she could pick that apart a bit for us. And here's what she said. The issue of legacy and tradition is very strong in Catterskill Falls. And actually, it's true in all families, what gets passed down from one generation to the next. But it's more overt in a community that's really trying to maintain tradition, as this community has done. And it's very poignant because even this community, with all its attempts to sort of maintain and capture and separate from the changing outside world, you know, even they are in flux, right? I mean, nothing really stays forever. Nothing lasts forever. And different personalities come into play and different forces will affect people. So um, I guess I was really interested in that, um, that sort of poignant situation. Mm -hmm. And in that family, there's an issue of sort of the legacy of the rabbi of this community and his two sons. There's going to be no dynasty there because there's a son who is very dutiful, but not brilliant. And there's a brilliant one who isn't interested in sort of carrying on the tradition. These are the kinds of ironies and little tragedies that <laughs> parents have to deal with, you know? Yeah. yeah. You just can't control everything. Or anything. <laughs> That's been a big theme for Julie and me. I hear you. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, I want to talk just for a second about COVID and families. COVID has had such a dramatic effect on family dynamics, right? Some people have been totally isolated. Others have spent more time with their immediate family maybe than ever before. Mm -hmm. I know in my case, for example, I got to spend much more time with my daughters who would otherwise have been on campus Mm -hmm. than I would have. And at the same time, I haven't seen my parents at all. Mm -hmm. So you can have two different experiences or many different in one individual even. And most people have had to be distanced from their work families and or other kinds of community-based families. Have you thought at all about that? Have you had any thoughts that have arisen about family dynamics yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I think particularly the phenomenon of have of spending so much time with, you know, kids in their 20s, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. you usually see them twice a year. You know, you obviously you talk on the phone and you, you know, stay connected, but to have them living with you for that amount. So we have four kids and our oldest is married. So he and his wife came from New York last March when things were getting really bad and just stayed with us for about four months. Mm-hmm. And then our second son came home from graduate school, stayed with us. And then we had third son was home 
from college. And then daughter was finishing high school, senior in high school. And she, of course, went remote. So for four months, we had seven people, seven adults, really, in our house, some of them young, but (laughs) it was extraordinary. And it was like a crazy, crazy time. I mean, honestly, it was like a sitcom, you know? (laughs) And I think many people felt that way. It was just sort of not just the numbers of us, which were insane, like the amount of food that we were eating, (laughs) the amount of shopping. I remember at one point, my daughter-in-law went out to pick up some pizza for us all. And she got lectured by somebody on the street. They thought she was having a party because she had like this stack of pizzas. And she's just coming home to our immediate family, you know. But not only just the numbers, but also the different stages that people were at. So we had, you know, a young married couple. We had a child who was sort of losing her senior year. (laughs) You know, we had two in between. My husband also teaches my, and I was teaching a class at that point. So we were teaching classes on Zoom. And then we had three children taking classes on Zoom. And my oldest son was working on Zoom. And my daughter-in-law was clerking on Zoom. So mm. literally, we had like pre-trial hearings in our kitchen going on. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> it was so crazy. And it, it did have that kind of effect as one has in fiction of drawing everybody together in this sort of moment of illumination where you sort of see everybody and, you know, (laughs) Um, it was very dramatic. It was really fun. And it was, I also felt completely exhausted by it. I like when everybody, when two of them left and we were down to five people, I just, I felt like I just wanted to sleep for a week. I felt like nobody was home at that point. Five people (laughs) felt like nothing. And then when we went down to three people, you know, I was just, I felt like the house was empty. Yeah. And then I guess also all of us are sort of used to these sort of just really having a nuclear family, you know, a sort of a small nuclear family. And um, suddenly we had a multi-generational extended family living with us. So to have everybody together and be adults was really different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I just think all this to say, we're all going to remember this for a really long time, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yet one of the things I keep thinking about is that for most of human history, this is how we lived. The extended multi-generational family was normal. And the way we've been living for the last hundred years, that's the anomaly. Um, totally. I, I think the same thing. We're also sort of used to having quite a bit of privacy, you know? Yeah. yeah. And you don't get that much <laughs> when you're all there together. Right. It also made me think about sort of times like the depression when families moved in together. And of course, there are people who have had real hardship, financial, emotional, physical being crushed together in small spaces. That's really hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My mind keeps returning to the shtetl. Yeah. Those close quarters and difficult circumstances and big families. Oh my gosh. Yes. Although of course we're so privileged, you know, we have running water, (laughs) electricity. The big concern was the internet, you know? (laughs) Is there enough Wi-Fi to go around? Exactly. Exactly. And now we have arrived at the question that I am perhaps most excited about. Not to say I wasn't excited about the others, but I'm very excited about this one. What are some of the best novels about families, in your opinion, and what makes them so good? So I think people who write really, really well about family, I think Tolstoy does it incredibly. If you read Anna Karenina or War and Peace... His portraits of the family, the parents and the children and what they're actually thinking, his psychological acuity. And I so admire the way he moves from different points of view. 
the father who, you know, is greeting his little children in Anna Karenina, but he likes the daughter better. He says those sneaky things that, you know, people don't say aloud. So he's amazing. George Eliot writes beautifully about family. If you read in Middlemarch, the Garths, that's a really interesting portrait of a family. The Vinci's incredible portrait of a family. And again, she uses those different kinds of points of view to sort of give that family in the round, I will call it, you know, the 360 <laughs> view of the family, the vain mother, the handsome boy who is a bit of a scapegrace, the sister who is spoiled, you know, the father who's trying to earn enough money to keep them all. I mean, the whole thing is so interesting. So those are two really good ones. I think Jean Lahiri writes beautifully about family in mm-hmm. really interesting ways. Yeah. Um, Eudora Welty. If you've read Delta Wedding or Losing Battles, those are incredible books about family. She has that humor and that satire, but also um, really delves into the dynamics and conflicts um, that arise. And she's really good with the family history and the way people change that history to suit them and the way people forget things. And she has like, she'll have like people talking and they're trying to remember when an event happened and, and they do that thing that families do where they're all sort of like, and then he, no, it was before he was born, but after, you know, <laughs> they have these sort of internal milestones. Those are just some, some, you know, some quick examples. Right after the interview, Allegra emailed us to add to her list of favorite books involving families. She added Jasmine Ward's novel, Salvage the Bones, and her memoir, Men We Have Reaped. Also, Marilyn Robinson's Housekeeping and Gish Jen's novel, The Love Wife, and her story collections like Who's Irish? I, for one, have just started Maggie Shipstead's seating arrangements, which is about a family that's gathered to celebrate the wedding of a daughter. I'm only a few lines in. I haven't even finished the first page, and I'm already so excited about it, which is a little weird. No, that's the best. Is there anything better than getting sucked in page one in Go? No, it's so great. I'll keep you posted about how I like it. Yes, please do, because I'm reading a bunch of nonfiction right now, so I have no family stories to report on. But after I'm done, I'm very excited to get started on some of Allegra's recommendations. Yeah, me too. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Allegra at allegragoodman.com and on Facebook at Allegra Goodman. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Come listen to Book Dreams with Julian.